and I know that I say I don't know a lot, but I'm intentional about that because I think it's important to admit you don't know and admit you have more to learn. And I have more to learn from people from different backgrounds, different places, and in saying I don't know, like I mean it. But in that, I also know that this is important and I know it's possible and I know there's people that are doing it. And I know that seeds are incredible and it's important to protect and cultivate different seeds and share those back to communities. Welcome to the 251st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. From the moment one meets Abby Dickhoot, it's clear she's a young person who wants to play a pivotal role in making her community and the wider world a better place. There are many ways to be a positive change maker, so it's striking that when I interviewed Abby, she was just wrapping up her second season working on Prairie Drifter Farm, a community-supported agriculture operation in west-central Minnesota. To her, skills she gleaned from pulling weeds, picking vegetables, managing soil health, and connecting with CSA members are just as important as anything she may have learned in college about economic justice and ecological sustainability. Abby is part of a growing group of people who are getting into farming not just to earn a living on the land, but to connect people to that land by producing food in an ecologically sustainable manner. Innovations in regenerative ag techniques, coupled with marketing models that create close connections between producers and consumers, means farming is increasingly being seen by people like Abby as a path into creating a healthier landscape, as well as thriving communities. I visited Prairie Drifter Farm as part of interviews I was doing for the West Central Minnesota We Are Water initiative which is intended as a space for people of all ages and experiences to connect and learn through our shared connection to water. The farm, which is owned and operated by Joan and Nick Olson, is in a part of the state that has had to grapple with the challenges created by extreme weather resulting from climate change. It's striking that it's been able to thrive as a CSA by serving members right in its community, rather than hauling vegetable shares to urban, suburban centers like the Twin Cities. As Abby made clear during the interview, seeing firsthand how a farm like Prairie Drifter has managed to stay resilient utilizing creative production and marketing methods, gives her hope, and has gotten her thinking about innovative ways to run her own farm someday. Abby is also wondering what alternative land access models can be put in place to help more agrarian changemakers like herself cultivate a better world. Hello, my name is Abby Dickoot. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, right now we're on Prairie Drifter Farm in Litchfield, Minnesota. This is my second year here. I'm originally from Mankato, Minnesota. I've got a big family there. There's six of us siblings, niece and a nephew. And a year and a half ago, I graduated from University of Minnesota, Morris. I did environmental studies and human services. So my interest is really in people and the land, which is how I've gotten to be on this farm. I'm really interested in how land and growing food is healing and can build community and also can learn history and also create something good today. Um, and so here this year, we're finishing up in, uh, at the end of October, and I'll be going back to Mankato to live with my family. So this is a certified organic vegetable operation that is CSA style. So, so we have about 150 members between Litchfield and St. Cloud that do an upfront cost. Uh, and then they get boxes every week with our produce that we deliver to common pickup sites. And so on this farm, there's um, 
sustainable practices used in field management and compost is applied and these are all things I'm still learning about um, and you're trying to encourage you know beneficial pollinators and insects um, while also managing some of the pests like potato beetles. This type of farming is what I have been exposed to uh, in Morris I got to see a lot of organic cattle operations and some other vegetables as well as farms that aren't certified organic but practice sustainably and sustainably is such a large definition but essentially trying to do your best to care for the land while producing from it uh, and those practices can look totally different and so some of the things I'm learning here is that water management, that soil management, how to balance pests and insects um, as well as just you have to get a lot of produce out for your members and so there's some things where quality changes and you know later on there's a lot more disease so you have to adjust for that so I feel like I've been learning a lot of lessons of adjustment in this type of farming but I do have my mom is from Crookston, Minnesota and is from a larger scale conventional farm up there and it's not a history I know too much about but I still have an uncle up there who helps with sugar beets and so also trying my best to learn more about that type of farming but say this is what I'm most curious about because I think there's also a lot to learn from the land and to be able to do that you have to take care of it. So with the CSA model with those 150 members, um, Joan who I work with and Nick maintain a lot of that personal interaction with the members and so there is that chance for those members to be supporting this farm and this land care and the water management while also getting really good produce in exchange. Um, and I think it's also a really smart way to share the financial burden of the farm. So members put the upfront cost and that allows us to get started in the summer. And with that, you're also investing in the bad weather that might happen or unforeseen changes that it provides that safety net for vegetable farms. I think definitely there's challenges with maintaining that many connections with that many people, but it's almost one of the things that they do this for. But yeah, so if people enjoy this type of food and farming and produce and work like they get to support my work being here by buying into the share and they Nick and Joan do a lot of ways to also make the shares accessible to people since it is a higher upfront cost which I find something to be really important is not only raising good food but making sure it's accessible to everyone um, and I think that having enough members allows for that. Yeah so then in supporting the farm you're supporting how the land is being taken care of in the water and I guess it's not really just an investment in the people and the food, but in the land we're on and caring for that. And I think sometimes it's hard for people if you're living in a town or a city to feel that connection. And I guess I've seen these farm connections as one way, isn't especially cool when people can visit the farm and really see what it's taken care of and also what we're being given, like that relationship we have with the land. It's not just random farm produce showing up to your farm. <laughs> uh, I guess just in the two years I've been here, there's even just there's been a huge difference regarding the climate in terms of moisture and rain. So last spring was super wet, planting was late, everything started late, there was a lot more rot on some plants, but then you didn't have to irrigate a lot because <laughs> it was always wet. Um, but sometimes that moisture resulted in a lot of disease. But this spring, it was a lot more dry. Uh, you could plant a lot earlier. Tomatoes almost had no disease, which is due to just lack of excess moisture. Um, but you were irrigating a lot more. And so I guess just in terms of climate change and the changes that are coming with that, it's continuing to be, I feel like, just more erratic. And you might have later growing seasons and they're ending shorter too. Like we got a frost really early this year and that changes your plans for having later crops. And I think also just from 
what I've been learning, there's a lot increasing in types of like pests and seeing them later and seeing them more often. And just over the past couple of years, I've heard that get worse. And so me continuing to go into farming, however that looks, I know that I'll have to keep learning about especially those diseases and pests, like what's coming with humid weather or what's coming with dry or what's just coming because of something that happened in the south and it, you know, it moves up and it's a lot of unknowns. And I think also with the growing season being a little bit more uh, unsteady, like you just can't count on it like you used to. I feel like that is going to be a new adjustment. It's not just an earlier spring or an earlier fall. Those are the new changes setting in. And so kind of wondering though, if those are consistent or if they continuously are erratic. But it's been interesting even just on the two years here, seeing how different a season can be and how much stress that can bring in terms of adjustments needed on top of other management. Uh, as far as soil goes, I think what I've observed most is the huge difference it has on different crops. So a field we had, you know, pigs on a couple years ago produced massive broccoli heads. But then, you know, we have really sandy soil up the hill that produces really good onions, but maybe not something else. And just so just to start, the different types of soil has been interesting to see how they affect different plants. What I've been most curious about too is then managing if there are diseases in soil or the moisture in soil. So those two together affect what your crops are gonna look like and if they're gonna do well or if you're gonna lose an entire field due to a disease that's in your soil. I have a lot more to learn about soil and the components of it and how you manage it. I know you know, some of like what they input and, you know, the tillage that happens and the composting that happens. And I'm curious about no-till systems and how that works from weed pressure. But we do a lot of weeding here. <laughs> and so learning about how you manage like the seeds, you know, of the weeds that, you know, if they have a huge seed bed, you're going to have a lot of carrots to weed, just a lot of time, which is less time doing something else. And so I think I also interact with soil that way is it affects everything you do later on. And I'd say I definitely am curious to learn more about what are the components in soil health. And I know they do soil tests and, you know, sometimes they add something here or there. But in the second year, I haven't been learning any of that. But I know that they do their best, Nick and Joan, to share that. Um, but I do appreciate that we are, like, they always add on compost at the end of the year. And we always do our best to, you know, not make it more compacted than we need to and they help make sure that's broken up at the end of the season and so I think what I'm learning is that soil is precious you know and sometimes we're even careful to like if we like we don't want to bring in extra soil so we're always wiping off our carrots because that's what you want to stay there and to me that's huge because you're valuing where it is and it's not a lot it can't be a lost resource and so I think we do a lot to make sure it's healthy and the ways I've observed that you know are like the weed management and watering it and um, you're you know, also trying to plant cover crops. <laughs> That's a huge thing they do. So they plant a lot of cover crops and specific cover crops depending on if it's gonna break down, if you're gonna plant on it in the spring, um, if it can you know, kill by the first frost. And I appreciate that that's done because that's also, it's providing cover so you don't lose soil due to erosion, but it's also kind of helping all the friends underneath. I've been grateful to be at this farm and able to come in for a season or two to learn what I learned and also be on Prairie Drifter Farm. And we've been talking about land ownership and as an employee, you're not part owner. I know some have different structures that allow for that, but um, I appreciate being able to just be a temporary worker 
because uh, it allows you to kind of try it out or get really involved, but maybe like I'm gonna move closer to my family. So it allows me to still do that while I'm figuring out what I'm doing. In terms of like looking forward and land ownership, I know that just financially the burden of buying land and sharing that cost. I know that however I keep farming, it's gonna be with others. Um, we've been talking here on the farm, kind of this model of like one family running one operation and reaching this many customers. I'm kind of curious as to what it looks like when it's more collective ownership of a land or it's a more regionally based system. And there's like some farms I look to to learn from that to see how it's carried out when you have multiple owners and maybe you all live somewhere different, but you manage it together. You have maybe a couple operations. And just as like a young queer farmer, like having like a one family unit is gonna look really different, you know? And, and it should, like there's so many different types of farming that I think right now it's been good to see and learn from those because they exist now and they have. And so part of me going into farming is also seeing different relationships to land ownership and when do I need to own versus when is renting good or some people incubate. There's a lot that goes into maybe who should be owning that land that I need to learn about too. Uh, thinking about that, but also just in general, my relation to the land. So not like the ownership of it, but just feeling connected to it. It's something that I really value that I have time to think about while I work. You know, growing up on a hobby farm, we were always outside. And since there were six of us kids, we were outside probably even more. And that I think just really helped me to understand that it's valuable to be in relationship to the land, even if there's not always a cost or a name to it. It's valuable just to be. And there's been many times where just a walk outside has been really extremely healthy for me. And I know it can be as simple as that, as if that's all you can do is a walk. That's what you can do. But I really enjoyed getting to learn more about the plant names and what you can use plants for, but also just how plants act or what's in season, like the asters right now I've been learning about. So. I just appreciate that aspect too. And even if my unknown is how I continue to farm and what ownership looks like, you know, I know that there's always that ability to hopefully find land and be in relationship to it and know that it's not only an extractive one, <laughs> that you can, it can be reciprocal. And also at this point, I don't think I'm unique in saying that. Like I think it's, it almost can't be a choice anymore to care about the earth, <laughs> you know, um, shouldn't have ever been, but just me along with other other people my age and my younger sisters starting to like just really care it's almost it shouldn't I don't know it's it doesn't seem like it's a choice anymore to be like well this makes sense you know we should be giving back uh, and learning from those who do give back you know so in terms of prairie drifter farm I think since this is my second season I should know what indigenous land we're on and I will admit I don't it's not to say Nick and Joan I think they might you know uh, but for me speaking I haven't yet taken time to learn that history or connect with any of the tribal communities near here. Um, and I think that I need to, like, that's something I need to do as well. Also shouldn't have been a choice to wait on that. And as I go into Mankato too, to be back with my family, there's a lot of community healing and building and acknowledgement that needs to be happening. And it was interesting not learning about the history of Mankato until I left there really. And so just in terms of also land, it's not only just recognizing maybe whose land it was that was stolen, but present day, you know, is there a family nearby or is it a reservation where they want to have a say in that land? If that's even necessary or if it's just, you know, a relationship to their people, like it, I don't know. But I think there's that responsibility to find out or make those connections or support indigenous farmers in the ways that you can. Um, and also, I think for me, as I keep learning, being mindful of who I'm learning from um, and that it's not 
always just other white farmers like myself I learned from <laughs> um, and holding you know holding myself accountable to what I need to learn with so that means also being in community with others and you know when I'm with my family Mankato we as a community as a family can do a lot more to connect with our community members and build a different history and so I guess when I've talked about like collective land ownership in the future or a farm with others I think I'd also have to like be really mindful of whose was that and if I have the ability to find anyone related what should be done with that or you know should land be given back or should it be collectively run and they also we share tools you know I think there's a bunch of different ways to do it obviously it's gonna look different where you are but I think just like as I was speaking about our environment and taking care of it it shouldn't be a choice at this point especially because anything I'm learning now or participating in hasn't come hasn't come free it's come at the expense of a lot of others so that's also my priority and privilege has to be uh, doing that and doing it honestly and genuinely too generally I do try to be very hopeful about the future and know that we as people can make change but it is very overwhelming to think about how much land right now has been removed from the hands of farmers and indigenous farmers and peasant farmers around the world <laughs> and in the U.S. and how much that has turned into huge conventional cropping and management that I'm not even aware of and how it's global, you know. Um, and that really scares me because I don't know a lot about it. Then also thinking though on the flip side to think about this type of management at a really large scale is overwhelming. You know, how do you do small scale vegetable farming and feed enough people? What would it take to feed the city of Litchfield? Um, you know, 5,000 people. Okay, it take, you know, <laughs> five times, you know, just the, the sizing up and how do you compete with big agriculture without losing the values you're standing on and what's tricky is that it's not a simple thing as sizing up it's also involves the whole community having a different approach to food and government policies allowing for that and supporting financially these farms and getting farms back to indigenous and black farmers like that has to also happen at the like policy level as well as people i also have to leave space to be hopeful that everything that people have been working on the last 10, 50, 100 years, like even before that, it's it's important. Like that's not diminished just because right now we have a ton of land that is being flooded and eroded away by <laughs> poor management and poor management that sometimes is, isn't a choice for the farmer on the land because there's deals there that I don't understand that keep farmers in that cycle. I would like to see there to be room for larger food system overhaul, but not in a way that you lose track of what farmers got into this for. So I think the collectiveness of farming has a lot of opportunity and I don't think that's a new idea either that we should work together. I just think we've gotten away from that in isolated farm units and that was kind of brought over to North America is that one family should run a farm and you should own land and you should run it this way. That's where it's like, how do we do this together at a larger scale it is going to require more people and more people is going to require more resources so that people can do that and I know that I can't participate in everything and be you know an expert on all of it and so that's kind of where now getting into it it's like well I want to be learning right on the land from different farmers and I want to be aware of policy work that's being done and I want to be aware of farming that's being done 
you know, in Mexico and South America and in Europe and having the knowledge that people are thinking about this everywhere and taking care of land everywhere and there's tons of, di like, tons of different ways to, to do that. It's also, it's a huge unknown though, so like I don't know what it looks like, but I, I trust the people that are into it now and learning about it in a bunch of different ways. And I know that I say I don't know a lot, but I'm intentional about that because I think it's important to admit you don't know and admit you have more to learn. And I have more to learn from people from different backgrounds, different places, and in saying I don't know, like I mean it. <laughs> but in that, I also know that this is important and I know it's possible and I know there's people that are doing it. And I know that seeds are incredible and it's important to protect and cultivate different seeds and share those back to communities. In thinking about that collective farming, it also brings more people in. And I think so much has been done to remove people from the land and food and often forcibly. People have been given commodity foods and moved into cities when that wasn't wanted or needed and so, or by choice. And so here it's knowing that like, I don't think everyone in a big city can have their own farm and live on it at this point. That might be quite challenging to figure out, but that doesn't mean that people can't always have a relationship to food and farming and land. And like when we were saying earlier, people invest in a CSA model because they care about this type of farming. I think the more we can build that, the more people can see that you know, here in this case, it's food. People produce a lot of different things from the land. All, like this is vegetables, there's fruit, meat, dairy. People then know that they deserve that. <laughs> they deserve really good food and there's ways to do that without it just being something that's overpriced at a certain store. It should be everywhere. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, Abby Dekut was interviewed as part of the We Are Water initiative, which documented the stories of several farmers in the upper reaches of the Minnesota River watershed who are using innovative production methods to not only protect our water, but to make their land more resilient in the face of challenges such as climate change. The webinar series that resulted is a partnership involving the University of Minnesota at Morris Office of Sustainability, the Stevens County Soil and Water Conservation District, and Clean Up the River Environment in cooperation with the Land Stewardship Project and with support from the Southwest Regional Sustainable Development Partnership. For more on the We Are Water initiative, see landstewardshipproject.org and go to the podcast page for episode number 251. There, you'll find a link to the Sharing Stories webpage. That webpage includes links to webinar discussions involving Dekut, as well as other farmers who were interviewed for the series. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.